Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Nick and Manny's Infinite Podcast. Nick, you're here. How was your week? I'm here. It was a week. Uh, it was a really busy week. It was my first my first full week of work, as in I went to five different schools in five days doing photography, and that included a lot of traveling. So I'm tired Ew. as hell. I've got a couple days off this week, and I'm really looking forward to them. Well, that's good. You rest your toes. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. This is Nick and Manny's Infinite Podcast. It's the show with infinite questions and infinite guests. So this week, we got a couple of cool things in store. We've got a game that I'm going to play with Nick oh, because he doesn't know anime or Fallout Boy. So we're going to see which one he knows even less. So that's going to be exciting. You gave away the whole bit. Wow. I did indeed give away the whole bit, but you got to give them something to to look forward to. So if they hear anime and or Fallout Boy, they'll want to stay towards the end of the show. Mm, good point. Good point. Nick, we also have another big topic that we've been teasing for a couple of weeks. We do. Uh, stay tuned for the end of the episode because probably the longest segment we've ever had. We're going to talk about Halo. Finally, I've been waiting three whole weeks to talk about Halo. It's mostly been of our own doing just because we ran out of time both times. Exactly. We don't have infinite time like ah, Halo. Good one, good one, good one. I like it. Exactly. I like it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what do you want to talk about first, buddy? Let's see. I am now getting ready to go back to my college and go finish up some more school. Mm, senior year for you? Practically my senior year. I still have to do a fall semester next year, but it's pretty much my senior year. Gotcha. You'll get like all the major stuff out of the way here and then your last semester will be kind of easy. Yeah, for the most part. I think it's I think next semester in fall, I'll only have like one of my minor classes, maybe one more major class and then the rest are electives. But Ah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. My my last semester of college got cut short by COVID. So all the classes that I had that were kind of serious were kind of just ruined by COVID. Like, all the film production classes I had became online, and we couldn't shoot anything. So we kind of didn't get to fulfill the purpose of the classes, and it really sucked. So I'm glad you get, uh, hopefully, as long as COVID stays okay. Uh, hope, I'm glad you get a proper last year, last semester, all that stuff. Yeah, I the same thing happened with me, because it was my first semester of school, I believe. And so, or my first year of school. So that second semester is when COVID hit, and we were in the middle of a film maybe like intro to like filming class or whatever and so I had done oh no it was an editing class so I had done a um what are those called a video essay I'd done a video essay about Star Wars because of course I did and then uh the Star Wars nerd yeah exactly and then the second assignment which was our final that we had to do essentially got cut short and they're like all right basically just do anything on your phone that relates to the current state of the pandemic and all these other things and see what you can create like we're not going to grade you too harshly about it so i did a sock puppet uh video about toilet paper shortages about toilet paper shortages okay that was like the first big story of the pandemic it was like toilet paper shortages and then tiger king that that was what the first month of the pandemic was it really was. It was everyone buying toilet paper because they thought, oh, we're not going to have any more toilet paper in the world. Uh-huh. 
and then after that came Tiger King and everything that came along with that. And I guess they're still going along with that TV show, which is just why? Why? <laughs> On Peacock, of all things, which means no one's going to watch it. Mm. What, what do you think has more viewers, Peacock or Apple TV? Ooh, uh, I'm going to say Peacock. I'm pretty sure Peacock just because and I'm not going to I'm, I'm not trying to hype myself up here too much. But they have the whole WWE library, so they have that whole fan base that migrated over to Peacock a couple months ago. I think that helps them tremendously, uh, and I think the Olympics probably helped them and the fact that they have all those sports on there. Apple TV doesn't really have any of that, and I don't think they've marketed themselves particularly well either. I don't think Apple TV has marketed themselves very well, but I do think they have one thing that is definitely helping them right now, and that's Ted Lasso, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I think... I'm torn as to which one has more subscribers, if it's Peacock or Apple TV. I think Apple TV might have more subscribers because there was that whole promotion of, oh, if you buy a phone from us, you get six months or like a year free. And now PlayStation is doing the same thing, where if you have PlayStation now, you're getting six months of Apple TV Plus for free. So I think that coupled with the meteoric rise of Ted Lasso is definitely helping them. Yeah. But I mean, they also have other things, you know, you have Shyamalan's show, you have Justin Theroux, he's got his own show on there. You have Emily Dickinson starring Haley Steinfeld. That's a great show to watch. Um, so there's lots of things that Apple TV has that I'm sure will appeal to some people, but I do agree that they haven't done the best job of marketing themselves. Yeah, for sure they haven't. Um, while you were while you were talking there, I looked it up a little bit. At least the Apple TV side. Uh, this says Apple TV Plus had an estimated forty million subscribers at the end of twenty twenty, uh, but it also says they kind of lump that in with uh, other Apple services and that that's including the uh, the free trials that everyone got, which is how I used Apple for the last year when I got my my phone in August of last year. I got a free year of it and it expired in August of this year. So I've never actually paid for Apple. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people too, because that's an incredibly generous deal. Even though Apple TV is pretty cheap, it's only, what, five bucks a month? It's five bucks a month. And I'm yeah. lucky because I don't have to pay for it either currently. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who let me use their login. So thank you for that. That was <laughs> very generous of you. Yeah. Well, to be fair to Peacock, they do also have, I guess they have a free option, which has ads on it. They have like three tiers, I think. They have like a $5 option, which is limited ads, but it does have ads. And then they have the $10 premium option. So they have options, and that probably helps boost their subscriber count just because they can count their free subscribers and their $5 ones too. Yeah, so Peacock, you have your free version that you can sign up for. Then if you have NBC with your cable provider, you get the premium version that has the ads, and then the premium version without the ads is only $5 if mm -hmm. you have NBC already. Yeah. So they do have a couple of workarounds. The same thing with HBO Max. If you yeah. had HBO Go, HBO Now. HBO Go? One of the two. Both, you had I think. one of those. If you had either of them, that, tur that turned into HBO Max for you. Because it was just paying the same amount. Or if you already had HBO with your provider, you got that for free. I think that's the reason why we have our HBO too, is because I'm like, no, don't get rid of it yet. We get HBO Max with that. Yep. So I looked up the Peacock side of things. As of Q1 2021, which was a few months ago, uh, the number of US-based subscribers of NBC Universal's premium ad-supported streaming service Peacock has leaped from 33 million in, in Q4 2020 to 42 million in Q1 2021. Now, that's before WWE came over and that's before the Olympics, so I have to imagine that number's jumped since then. So, at least for now, it looks like they're edging out Apple TV. 
Yeah, I'll give that to Peacock. I think they probably are winning right now. I do wonder how much of a draw everything from the WWE is, really, or if it's just a niche, but I'm sure it is a big draw for people. And the Olympics, I wonder how many of those people are actually going to stay now that they're done or about to end. I don't know if they ended. I don't follow the Olympics. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they've ended. I don't follow them either. But just a little bit about wrestling. The WWE Network which was the previous streaming service that they put all their pay-per-views on and like all their all their new content was on other than their weekly tv shows that had between one and two million subscribers to it um so i assume most of those people because that's how they watch their wrestling they probably all mostly most of them migrated over to peacock and i imagine some people probably went there because peacock has the the free and limited ad support plans and that that uh the wwe service was 10 bucks a month so it's it's a wash if you're getting the full service and you're saving money if you get one of the cheaper ones. So I think that probably brought a lot of people over. Gotcha. Yeah, it's the same thing that happened with the DC Universe when all that got transferred over to HBO. Oh, Max. yeah, that. Yeah, listen, I've... listen, I never <laughs> I did. I did actually have it because I got a free trial from my Microsoft Bing points. I think, listen, Microsoft Bing points use them on everything. Uh, okay, Spider Man. Yeah, I am. I am Andrew Garfield Spider Man from The Amazing Spider Man and The Amazing Spider Man 2. Um, but I used those points to get, I think, like a month of DC Universe, but that was just so I could watch Doom Patrol. And Doom Patrol is fantastic. So I didn't. End, so I've heard. I didn't end up using the rest of the service. I never read any of the comics. I didn't watch Titans because Titans is horrendous. Um, but I did watch <laughs> Doom Patrol. So I was very glad when they said, all right, all the DC Universe stuff is going to be on HBO Max now. So I didn't have to pay for it ever again. And I watched Doom Patrol season two. And now Doom Patrol season three is coming out very soon. And I'm very excited. Yep, I was just about to mention that. I heard there is a new season coming soon. There is indeed a new season coming. It's I'm pretty sure it's going to be like season two B realistically, mm-hmm. because I think season two got cut short because of the pandemic. So it's really going to be closer to like a season two B, but it's going to be exciting either way because Doom Patrol is fantastic. Everyone has been raving about Loki and stuff, and I think it's just fine. But Doom Patrol is really what I think Loki tries to be, which is mm-hmm. just weird and interesting and brings up a lot of good ideas. But Doom Patrol just does it so much more interesting and does it just does it better, honestly. Like, there's no tiptoeing around it. It has better characters, in my opinion. I think it's filmed way better than Loki, and it uses itself very well. We got Brendan Fraser, who... If you haven't seen his resurgence on the internet, it's so wholesome. I was going to mention that. Brendan Fraser. Everybody loves him, and it's it's the nicest thing in the world. He's just so happy about it. It is, because he got done dirty by Hollywood. Yeah. But it's good to see him. It's, I really do think Doom Patrol sort of started that resurgence, because everyone was like, oh, Brendan Fraser, I haven't seen him in a while. But then they saw him in that, and now he's going to be working with Bobby. He's going to be working with, uh, with your guy, mm-hmm. Scorsese. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how his career continues to shape up. I'm really excited for him. Yeah, he just had a great uh, little bit part in No Sudden Move with Soderbergh. So he's working with everybody. I think this is probably if he wants him. I don't know if he's ever going to make like a full comeback to the star he was like in the in the prime mummy days. But he can do respected work with respected filmmakers. And even if it's not a big role, I think everybody will appreciate him coming back in in whatever capacity he comes back in because everybody from a certain generation at least, seems to have a real soft spot for him, and it's great to see. Yeah, it is really good to see. So, 
What have you been watching this week, buddy? This week, I have been watching... I started watching A Series of Unfortunate Events again. That's on Netflix. Mm. Have you ever seen it? I watched the first episode, so I read all the books once. I read them, I think, in sixth or... Uh, it might have been over a couple years, but in middle school, whenever, whenever it was. Uh, I really liked the books... And I didn't like the the Jim Carrey movie. I watched that once, and I thought that was pretty bad. I saw one episode of the Netflix show, and I thought it was better, but it, I wasn't really vibing with it. I didn't really like Neil Patrick Harris in it. I've just I've never liked any of the portrayals of Count Olaf, so I I stopped the show there. I heard it got better as the seasons went on, and even like from episode one to two, I heard it got much better. I do agree with that. Yeah, I I just never got around to it. I kind of want to, but also I feel like I've just pretty much moved on from those books understandable for me i had seen all the seasons when they had come out and i just really wanted something to watch i was like all right i'll rewatch them it's been enough time and i really enjoy it i think patrick warburton does a great job playing lemony snicky he has this nice dry wit but it's also like a sincere sadness for everything that's going on in the baudelaire's life which are the little kids but it's also really funny in the way that everyone is just horrendous, except if you're one of the two kids, well, three kids, because they have Sunny. If you're one of the three kids, then you're, like, fine, like, character-wise, but all the other ones are just horrendous to them. I remember one of the very first episode, Mr. Poe, who is the banker, uh, his wife, she's a journalist, and so she just writes an entire story about, oh, the Baudelaire's were in a fire, and their parents died. And she brings it up in the table as a good thing. She's like, look at me. I wrote a front page paper and everyone's so happy about it. <laughs> and it's just like those kinds of things that make me laugh. Yeah. Where, uh, later on, she gets a quote from them when they're going in bed. It's like, do you miss your do you miss your mother and father? Are you sad? It's like, yes. It's like, yes, what? It's like, we miss our parents and we're very sad. And then the next shot that you see is the front page of the newspaper. And it has that quote and then a photo of them. <laughs> That was always my favorite thing about the books is how they were able to make humor out of such misery. And I think it, in a way that still made them enjoyable for kids, because all that subject matter, if you look at it totally objectively, is super duper dark. And sometimes the the books follow that tone, especially as they get later. Uh, but I think the, the way that they make humor out of that, especially with Snicket's like meta writing that he does, I think really works. Yeah. And there are like little things throughout the show as well, where an adult will be like, uh, this word means that. And then they'll both go, we know what it means. And it's just like, mm -hmm. it's those kinds of things of the difference between an incompetent adult and then a smart child, Yep. which Stephen King does that a lot. Like if you watch it or if you read it. You know, that like all the adults are incompetent, but the kids are the ones seeing everything. So it's like that, but more child friendly, but it's still really dark. Um, I agree with you, Patrick, Neil Patrick Harris. He's not my favorite Count Olaf. I don't think there really is a perfect interpretation, but I no. do like his. I do like the fact that they play up his acting troupe a lot more in the mm -hmm. show, because in the movie, they just sort of. They address it, but they don't really do a whole lot with it. Whereas in the show, it's throughout all three seasons that yeah. they bring up the acting troupe. And some of them get really nice characterizations. So that's really good to see. Yeah. Well, I just remember the problem with the movie being that they had to rush through, what was it, the first three books that they did? Three. Yeah. Because the first season was the first four books. Mm -hmm. But they each got their own hour or two, right? So yeah, the first season was two episodes per book. And that was, I believe, eight episodes for that first season. I think it goes eight, ten, and then six. So the first three 
arcs were those first three books, and then the fourth one was is one that we didn't see in the film. Gotcha. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I only watched that movie once, but that was my my overriding thought. This was right after I read the books, at least the first few, so I knew what the movie was covering, and I thought it did such a terrible job, even as like a twelve year old when I watched it, just because they had to rush through everything, and there was a lot of stuff that was missing that I wish would have been there. I might feel differently now, but like I said, I don't know how likely I am to go back to any of that. Mm. I wouldn't know anything about a film adaptation rushing through a series of events that should be happening in a sequential order and importance to any characters or anything like that. I wouldn't know. Nothing anything. at nothing all. Of, nothing at all. Moving on. Moving on. So outside of a series of unfortunate events, I started to get back into Bad Batch, which is the Star Wars animated show that follows after Clone Wars. Yeah. Um, I saw the first two uh, when they were airing. And then I just sort of fell off because I had other important things that I wanted to watch or get to and stuff. So I came back and I still like the show. The issue is it's very member berries and it's closer to Rebels than Clone Wars, in my opinion. I don't know if you actually saw Rebels, but Rebels had a lot of tie-ins to other things throughout the Star Wars history. There was a lot of references to being like, oh, Hey, look, it's Captain Rex from the Clone Wars. Oh, hey, we're bringing in this character from the Clone Wars. Oh, here's this character from Legends and yada yada. So there was things that like, oh, here's Hondo Onaka, the pirate smuggler and all these other things. So they brought in a lot of characters to be like, hey, look, it's that thing you love. And so (laughs) this is doing the same thing of being like, oh, hey, look, it's that thing you love. Yeah. Uh, Well, if I were to uh, theorize on why those shows are that way, Rebels started after Disney purchased Lucasfilm. And Bad Batch is obviously airing after Disney has purchased Lucasfilm, well after. So I think that might be a clue as to why you're seeing all that referential stuff in those series that you didn't see, say, in Clone Wars back in the day. Well, I think what it is also, it's not like Clone Wars didn't have those things. I mean, you have the whole Mortis arc, and there was a bunch of other stuff that happened that would, like, reference things. Uh, I remember there they had, like, a Wookiee... Um, they had a whole Wookiee subplot. I think you saw Chewbacca in Clone Wars as well. Don't quote me on that. But I know that they had Wookiee younglings and stuff that were coming in. But I don't think it's necessarily because Disney bought it. I think it's just that Dave Filoni, who created all three shows, is now given that freedom to connect them more. So I think that's what he likes to do is likes to bring connections to everything to show, hey, it's still the same galaxy of heroes and all this other stuff which is fine but i do like when things are separate because the first episode of uh bad batch was about like an hour and a half and it was essentially just its own little movie following these characters and it was really good it had a nice tone it was pretty dark not like super dark but it was closer to clone wars especially that last season in tone but as the season goes along it gets a lot more jokey and friendly um someone compared it to ninja turtles where each of the different clones are designed to sell toys because they all have a different ability and i completely see that it's a lot kiddy kiddier if you can understand that yeah and also it could be that they're doing another uh or that they they could fit in another uh was it republic commando that squad based yeah, game that they made back in the day Republic Commando. all those different abilities could come together for a, a squad based video game down the line which they may or may not republic commando is actually canon in Star oh really the they they show up in clone wars okay yeah i uh i haven't seen any of rebels i heard i was following rebels fairly closely as it was happening but i never watched it 
Mm-hmm. So I watched Clone Wars at least part of it in the uh, the the chronological order, the one that they have on StarWars.com. Uh-huh. So I've seen everything before the first season, all the stuff that happens before, and pretty much all the first season, and then any of those little bits and pieces episodes. I haven't gotten any further than like probably early season two. So my knowledge of Clone Wars is fairly limited. I know more about where Rebels goes. I guess my whole point when I was talking about Rebels and Bad Batch and everything post-Disney being referential is that I think I was referring more so to the characters like the Emperor, Darth Vader, Ahsoka showing up, and and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul, just to name a few. I know there's more, but characters like that, characters like that showing up that yeah. are super referential to the point that anybody who knows Star Wars remotely will recognize them. You don't necessarily have to just have seen Clone Wars to recognize them. I think stuff like that is where I feel Disney fingerprints a little bit more, just because, especially back in like 2013, 2014 when Rebels was starting, I don't know if they had plans to do stuff with Obi-Wan and Ahsoka as they do now, because things have changed so much in the last few years. So back then, I think they wanted to bolster Rebels as much as they could by bringing in characters like that. Yeah, and the good thing is Bad Batch isn't bringing in those characters per se, it's bringing in a lot of Clone Wars characters. So it's tying closer to that, which in itself had its own separate subplots. Like, it wasn't always following Anakin or, or Obi-Wan or all these other things. It, it did follow a lot of side characters. And so it's bringing in a lot of those. But the biggest one is Rex, who we never see... Well, we never explicitly see him in the films. He is retconned to be in Return of the Jedi as one of the fighters on uh, Endor. Yep. So he's he's there, but... It is staying a lot closer to Clone Wars than I would say Rebels did. Because Rebels brought in a whole host of characters. The only legacy character that shows up, and I think is actually used pretty well, is Tarkin. Oh, in Bad Batch? In Bad Batch. In Bad Batch, Tarkin shows up for two or three episodes. But he comes in and you like feel his presence of, oh... This is a general who has known the entire time what is going to happen, and he wants to get things done. Mm-hmm. And I think it works pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a more interesting use of a character like that to me than the way he was using Rogue One. Even like ignoring the weird CGI quality of him, like using him in a time period that he hasn't actually been explored in, I think is much more interesting than just bringing him back in something that takes place right before the first movie. Because you get to see him at a different point in his life. And he factors into everything in a different way than he factors into the stuff that's happening right around the time of A New Hope. Yeah, and he had his he had his moments with Anakin in Clone Wars. I think he was there for one or two episodes. But, like, you see the beginnings of, oh, this is the relationship that's going to form. But in Bad Batch, it's really just like, oh, this is the guy in charge right now who's deferred to be in charge for everything. And you see that in the way that everything works. You see... The different conspiracies within Kamino and the and the clones and seeing oh is this really what they were intended for or is there more to them and I think it's really interesting. I'm only on episode eight. I just finished the mid season finale, and I actually really liked it. So I still got the rest of season one to go, which is another eight episodes. But I am enjoying it overall. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so is that are, th- are those episodes still to air later this year or are they all done? No, season one is completely done. They've greenlit season two, so that's Mm -hmm. coming sometime next year. And then we have Star Wars Visions, which is the Star Wars anime, and that's coming out this year. Yeah, as of this recording, didn't that trailer drop today? That trailer did indeed drop today. It looks really good. Isn't the deal with that that each episode's from, like, a different anime company? 
Yes, it's from a different uh, anime company studio, uh, each episode. And so it's going to be really interesting to see the different styles. I saw some of them in there that looked really cool, and I'm really excited for this. Because it's, it's using the license, but in a creative way, which is good. I'd rather them start exploring with these kinds of different anthology one-off series and seeing what different creators can do with them. Yeah, that's that's what interests me more than anything that they've been doing with Star Wars. And I, I'm not even super into anime, which we'll we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. Uh, I've never really gotten into anime that much. But the idea that they're doing something with Star Wars that's a bit more experimental, uh, a bit smaller scale, I'm sure. I'm sure that budget isn't anything near what they do for any other Star Wars property in the last few years. And everything from a different stylistic perspective, that that's something that intrigues me a lot and i hope we see more of that especially with disney properties yeah it should be interesting i really like when companies like like marvel's doing it with what if as well and i think that's a really cool way of telling different stories using a different medium and seeing how effective you can be with it yeah i've I've, i'm a little little bit more cynical about what if although compared to everything else that marvel's doing i'm probably less cynical about what if than anything else just because i don't feel compelled to watch it just to keep up with what's going on yeah, the good thing is that, like, it's quote-unquote canon, but, you know. Yeah. Spoilers for Loki. I'm going to go into spoilers for Loki real quick. Okay, go ahead. At the end of Loki, they uh, they formed the multiverse officially. So the multiverse is officially a thing in Marvel. So all those what-if stories are just multiverse stories on different Earths and stuff. So that makes them technically canon? Technically, they are canon. Gotcha. I have my own feelings about them establishing something as big as the multiverse in one of their TV series that is not one of the movies that I pay to see. That's something that I have my own feelings about that I'll probably go into uh, later down the line. If you've been following this show already, you know how cynical I can be about Disney and stuff like that. Uh, And that's just, that's an example of it for me. Yeah, which is completely fair. I mean, Feige said years ago, everything is now homework and stuff. So it's completely understandable if you don't want to do that and you don't feel like you should have to if it's going to be connected to movies. I completely understand that. Yeah, I've just I've just kind of moved on from that kind of stuff. And, you know, that was the person I used to be. And I've moved on. I, I watch different things. I value different things than what I watch now. And people people like that content. If they still like it, more power to them. It's just not not as much of my thing anymore. Yeah. All right, I got one more thing that I watched. Okay. It's Ted Lasso. Yes. Season two, episode four of Ted Lasso. A Merry mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. That's not the episode, but that's what I'm calling it. Because it was a Christmas episode. Oh. And Christmas is August. my favorite holiday. And it's just such a joyful time. And it was a joyful episode. Everyone was just being so, it's so nice and warm. They had a lot of good messages. Um, they dive more into ted's story about everything that happened in season one and they sort of explore how it's doing now in season two and i really like the way that they sort of show that relationship between parents and their kids and it's really Mm -hmm. it's really cool to see as well as just workplace relationships and sort of the families that you make when you're at a job for so long and it's really it's a really nice show yeah i i haven't watched this season. I know we talked about that last week. I have an idea of what you're referring to and how they handled uh, his family situation in season one is one of my favorite things, even though they didn't devote a ton of time to it throughout the season. I think stuff like that was super important because if they didn't do that, they would run the risk of him being, I don't know how to describe it, like almost like a Flanders-like character where he's kind of one note and you he's likable, but he would have been one note if you didn't humanize him in the ways like that. 
the the ways that they incorporated that with his family, I think, because it just shows that he's he's not perfect. He's got issues with other people, and that's just makes him more human in in a way. I think it makes him more endearing. Yeah, I always go to that karaoke that karaoke episode. It's just mm-hmm. it does everything so right because the previous episode you get introduced to those themes, but then the next episode they really explore it in a heartbreaking way but nothing that sort of takes you out of the show. You know that you're still watching the same show. It doesn't make a dramatic shift in tone. No. But I really like the way that, like, that's explored. And yeah. then I believe it's the last episode where, spoilers for season one of Ted Lasso, um, where the boss, I forgot her name, um, from Game of Thrones, shame, shame, uh, her, when she tells Ted why she actually hired him, and just his response of saying divorce is hard it doesn't matter if you're the one being it doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or the one being left it just shows like an understanding of people are gonna make mistakes for whatever reason that they're in but it's not your place to hold them to that you know because we all go through those kinds of things i just really love that message yeah i i like the approach that it takes i like the the overall message of positivity and i'm looking forward to watching this new season when when it's over and then I only have to pay the measly five bucks of Apple one time. That, that That's my plan. Exactly. If we want to go to movies, I do have a movie that I just finished watching. Okay, go go ahead. I think I know what you're talking about. So we have a running gag between the two of us. And it's about the classic early 2000s film starring Mike Myers, The Cat Austin in the Hat. Austin Powers and Goldmember. Ah, oh, damn it. No, The Cat in the Hat. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a movie that I'm sure all of us grew up with as kids. The Cat in the, and the story as well. It's Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. It's a classic story. And so I decided I'm going to rewatch this film because we had kept joking about it for months now about The Cat in the Hat and how it's a bad movie, but I still like it and stuff. And I will say the first 10, 15 minutes, while not being Cat in the Hat at all, I mean, it the book starts off, it was a dark, gloomy, rainy day, but in the movie, it's bright and sunny and cheerful and all this other stuff. So, book and movie comparisons, they are definitely not the same at all, but that being said, I actually did really enjoy the first 10, 15 minutes of it. There's Sean Hayes' character, who I still enjoy. I know that, like, some people are like, oh, my God, he's overacting. The movie's, like, overdoing so much of it. His line of saying you're fired in the way that he delivers it still makes me laugh. It's just so funny. It's not a good movie. I completely acknowledge that. I got really just terrified when Mike Myers showed up because he goes through so many different bits. They're just a bunch of sketches that are pulled together and acting like it's a movie. You have the cooking one and then the one where he's like a mechanic that's fixing the couch. It's just, it's really stupid and it's really bad. And the plot gets muddled throughout the entire film. That being said, there were some good performances there. Alec Baldwin, no matter what you think of him as a person, I mean, he's got the chops. He's a good actor. I hate how much I actually like Alec Baldwin as an actor because he's such a douche. I agree with you. Like when I watch Mission Impossible, I'm like, man, I'm... I know, like, your character, I'm not supposed to like it stuff, but you play it so well. And every so good. Like, he's a good actor. My favorite role of his is the boss baby. It's a great role. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. It's a baby that talks. He's in a suit. <laughs> he's in a suit, and he's a baby, and he talks. Can you believe it? They made two of these. They did make two, and a Netflix show. Oh, I, you can't forget the Netflix show. 
I'm sure that didn't get buried in the thousand thousand things a year that Netflix makes. No, it never could. It's the boss baby. Nick, put some respect on his name. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I watched Cut in the Hat. It wasn't good, but I enjoyed some of it. I, I have nothing really to add about the Cat in the Hat. It came out when I was five in 2003. I think I watched it. I'm pretty sure I did watch it once. I don't really remember much of it. Just the stuff that's been memed over the years, like the Dirty Ho moment. That's pretty much all I know. Now, one thing I will say, I pulled this movie up on Letterboxd while you were talking about it. You mentioned Sean Hayes' character. Is his character really named Mr. Humberflube? Humberflube, that is his name. He also plays the fish. Yes, it says Humberflube slash fish. That is indeed him. He uh, he plays Mr. Humberflube, who has, he's a, he's essentially Howie Mandel. He hates germs. And so if anyone shakes his hand and stuff, he yells at them that they're fired. Okay. And his his entire gag is, you're fired. Yeah, uh, he's really. Remind you of anybody? I can't say his name. I can't. I can't say the yeah. name on this podcast. Yeah. But uh, he, yeah, he's like that. Yeah. Oh, one other one other thing. Stephen Anthony Lawrence, that kid who was the kid in all the sports movies in the two thousands, he's in this. Uh huh. Wow. Yes, he is. Okay. Oh, I gotta watch this now. It's him and it's L Fanning. I want to say Dakota Fanning. Dakota Fanning. Yeah, it's one of the Fannings. Yes. Huh. But that about rounds up everything that I've been watching this week. Okay, well, you want to hear what I've been watching? Yes, let's hear it. All right, so I watched four movies last week. It was a little bit of a slow week, at least by my standards. I was just busy, didn't have nights available, whatever. So last week, I watched another Spike Lee joint, and this one was his first joint, which was She's Got a Habit, which is on Netflix right now. Have you heard of this movie? Do you know anything about it? I know of it because I know that there's also a show of it. Yes, there was. And I looked it up afterward and our boy Anthony Ramos is in that show. Anthony Ramos. <laughs> he is indeed. Yeah, I I didn't even know there was a show. I just saw it on Netflix months ago. I saw it was really short. I like watching short movies. I think it's like 84 minutes. It's really, really short. Uh, so I put it on my queue, yep. saved it for a rainy day or a, a night. In this case, it was a night that I didn't have too much free time. I watched it. It's It's definitely a first movie. But you can see how much potential he has. It's got his style sprinkled in there from the very beginning. It's got people talking directly to camera. It's got him in there. He's sort of editorializing a little bit of, of what he wants to say in any given moment. Uh, it's it's pretty solid. I don't think I loved it or anything. I just always find it really fascinating to watch the first movies from big, big directors. Just so you can see what aspects of their style that they had from the start. And you can see the growing pains that they went through. And I think if you're interested in kind of a big a historical footnote, I guess, in, in a career like that, I think you could do a lot worse than to watch something like She's Gotta Have It. I would recommend going going on Netflix, which is where it is right now, and giving it a watch. Additionally, I watched the Malice at the Palace documentary on Netflix, which just came out, I think, just last week. I think it was only a couple of days old when I watched it. Do you know anything about the Malice in the Palace? I do not. Well, the only thing I know is that it rhymes, I guess. So that's the, uh, I won't go into the whole story, that's the name that's been coined for the big brawl that happened between the Detroit Pistons and the Indiana Pacers in 2004. So sports, no wonder I don't know about this. Yes, N NBA. NBA, I didn't know what your knowledge was about sports. So, uh, brief brief history, uh, in, I think it was late 2004, late in the game, a Pistons player uh, started pushing around a, a Pacers player. Uh, this is Ron Artest, Middle World Peace, you might know him better by. He was involved in the fight with a few other players and a Pistons player. They all, I think at least the, the Pacers players that were involved, all got suspend, suspended for varying uh, lengths of time. One of them was out for a whole season, one of them was out for a few dozen games, one of them was out for a little less than that. 
and it was only about an hour long. I don't know if you if it technically counts as a movie or not. Um, it's on Letterboxd, though, so it has to be a movie, right? I mean, Red Dead Redemption 2 was put on Letterboxd at one point, so that's a movie. Letterboxd, fix your thing. Add different categories. We're fine if you have them on, <laughs> just put them in different categories. Oh, you, you want a brief Letterboxd note? Did you see what they added yesterday? Or it might have been a couple days ago? I did not. They have adult films on Letterboxd now. Moving on. <laughs> the posters are, like, pixelated out, but they have, like, they're they're on there. You can rate them like you can any other movie. Uh, it's interesting. Anyway, moving on. Malice at the Palace doc. I think if you're into sports, this is probably a must-watch for you. It's a typical Netflix doc in that it's very slickly made, and it probably doesn't go into as much detail as it could, and it very clearly takes one side of, I think, a story that's a bit more complicated than it is, or than they, at least than they portray it as being. But if you have an hour to spare, I think you can do a lot worse than this one. Moving on to one that you might actually know. Have you seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Steve Martin. Yes. Steve Martin and John Candy. Yes. From 1987, I want to say. Another John Hughes movie. I'm a big fan of the John Hughes 80s movies that I've seen. I've seen Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club and now Planes, Trains. This is the first one that's not exclusively like a high school story. And I guess the mix of his writing along with the super duper capable performances of Steve Martin and John Candy really make it. I don't think as a whole it's any like I, I wouldn't quite call it a classic. I ended up giving it four stars, but I think it's really solid. I'm glad I watched it just because that's another Another big thing that uh, older people look at me weird when I say I haven't seen. I checked that one off the off the list. Uh, the last one that I watched, I watched in a hotel room a couple nights ago. I saw the uh, prequel to what's apparently the greatest movie of all time. I saw the Paddington. I saw the first Paddington. Uh, that's on Peacock, by the way. Uh, if the two of you out there that have Peacock want to watch it, it's not the best movie ever. I'll, I'll have to wait to see whether the second one is the best movie ever. But it's a super delightful, extremely British family comedy. And I, I love the performance of Ben Whishaw as Paddington. Apparently that was originally Colin Firth, and then he voluntarily left the project because it wasn't working out. Uh, and then they, they brought Ben Whishaw in. But it's got like a who's who of, of British actors, a lot, a lot of people from Harry Potter, like at least three that I can remember off the top of my head. Actors that were in Harry Potter are in Paddington. Every, it's just delightful, I think, is the word that I would use for it from, from top to bottom. It's another super easy watch. It's about 90 minutes, I think. So if you're looking for something short and you happen to have Peacock, I would say go watch Paddington. That's an official recommendation from me. And that's all that I've seen in the past week. It's been, like I said at the top, it's been a super busy week for me. It's like Ted Lasso with a bear. Yes. And there's... It is funny, because... The antagonist of the of Paddington. Do you know anything about that character? No, I do not. Uh, so the character is played by Nicole Kidman, and she is a taxidermist, and she wants her some of that Paddington. And it's another thing that we were talking about earlier with like series of unfortunate events. Something that could be extremely dark if you like if you look at it totally objectively, but in the movie it totally works. Like they play it up almost for laughs in the movie in a way that works more than I feel like that subject matter should, and it's really delightful. That's delightful is is the takeaway that I have from that movie. I'm glad to hear that because Paddington, it's such a nice movie. It's one of those like if you ever have like a rainy day and, you know, like you're just in one of those moods where you just want to sit down and watch a movie under a blanket and stuff. Paddington's perfect for that. Yeah. Or if you're bored alone in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere in Missouri one night, watch Paddington. All right. Before we move on to uh, video games, which should take up most of the rest of this episode, there's one movie-related topic I want to get into. 
This is going to be extremely indulgent on my part. You won't care one iota, but I'm going to talk about it. Okay. The Criterion Collection last week announced that they're going to start doing 4K UHD Blu-rays. And to tell you that I was excited when I heard this would be about the understatement of the decade. I've been waiting for so long for them to do 4K since I uh, switched over to 4K a couple years ago. And I'm so glad that they're doing them. And the funniest thing about it is that the, the big one they announced was Citizen Kane. And did you see the cover of the Citizen Kane Criterion that's coming out? I did see the cover. It's just a K. That's all it is. It's just a K. It's super minimalist. There have been memes made about it for days. It's especially funny considering the movie that it's made for is a movie all about wealth and excess. And the design they ended up choosing for it was as minimalist as it was. It's hilarious, but I'm still going to buy that 4K. I'm still going to buy a bunch of uh, Criterion 4Ks. Uh, Mulholland Drive is coming out on 4K uh, with the new line. I know you don't care for that movie. I've never seen it, but I think if if I like that movie and I want to buy it, that's the route that I'm going to go. So I just wanted to bring that up and we can move on now. I just I got my little bit out of the way. I'm sad that you would think that I'm not excited for 4K Criterion collections. Are you into Criterion at all? Listen, I never bought one, but I always am like, oh, that's cool. That's in the Criterion Collection now. I'm I'm glad that they are doing 4K releases and stuff. It's always a pleasure when people are excited. Oh, this got added to the Criterion Collection. I am more than glad for you guys. Now, I don't buy any because I don't buy a whole lot of movies. Yeah. It has to be something that like I really want. But I, w- I have nothing against the Criterion. I would gladly buy something from them. Okay. Okay. All right. I didn't, didn't wasn't trying to be unfair to you. I just didn't think you cared, at least not on the level that I did, which I think is a fair a fair uh, assessment on my part of the situation. But yeah, I'm if you don't know me, I'm a physical media fiend. I think I have 300, close to 400 maybe, uh, Blu-rays, 4Ks up, up there and a bunch of seasons of TV. Uh, and I bought a handful of Criterions. I usually wait for a sale just because the, the MSRP, the full price is, I think, like 40 bucks for, for, one, for one movie on Blu-ray for Criterion. And that's a little pricey for me, especially especially up until now when I hadn't had a full-time job like I do now. Uh, so I usually waited for a sale. They have a handful of sales every year. So I would buy one movie at a time for, for 20 bucks each. That That's kind of how I've been going. I, there's a big list I have criterion movies that i want to buy in the future and i guess that list is going to get bigger and it's going to probably get more expensive with the 4ks all right let's move on to is that anime or is it fallout boy (laughs) we need a we need a game show jingle here exactly bobby bobby if you're listening make us a game show jingle (laughs) so i'm going to read off a, a title of either an anime or a fallout boy song I need you to guess which is which. Okay. I'm going to give you 10, and you're going to have to guess. Okay. We should tell the audience, just to be clear, I don't know Fallout Boy, and I don't know anime, so I'm the perfect target for this for this game right here. If I do well, I promise you I don't actually know what I'm talking about here. So, I'm going to start you really easy. All right? This is the first one. My mental choices are completely interfering with my school romantic comedy. Fallout Boy. Nope, it's an anime. Damn it. Some some bands get really indulgent and they do ridiculously long song titles. I thought that might have been one. All right. Here's the next one. A okay. little less 16 candles, a little more touch me. That's Fallout Boy. That is indeed Fallout Boy. I can't think of an anime that would reference 16 candles directly. All right, here we go. Bo 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 bo. Anime? That is indeed an anime. Yes, two for three. All right, next one. Rat-a-tat-tat. Fallout Boy. 
that is indeed Fall Out Boy. I think I've heard of that song. Exactly. This one is called This Ain't a Scene. It's a goddamn arms race. Anime. No, it's Fall Out Boy. Ah, damn it. All right, three for five. All right, next one. $20 Nosebleed. Fall Out Boy. It is indeed Fall Out Boy. All right, here we go. We're going to go with all-purpose cultural cat girl Nuku Nuku Dash. It says Nuku Nuku, so I'm going to say anime. It is indeed an anime. Okay. Uh, what is that? Five, uh, five or seven? It is. Okay. All right. This is a really easy one. Okay? Hold on. Then I'm going to extend fuck up. my screen. I, I don't know how you're going to mess this up. I slept with someone in Fall Out Boy, and all I got was this stupid song written about me. Anime? I'm kidding. Fall Out Boy. It is indeed Fall Out Boy. All right. Six for eight. Six for eight. I, I get at least a passing grade. You do. Here we go. Problem children are coming from another world, aren't they? Anime. Anime. Seven for nine. Can I get a B? And then the last one is called Champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. <laughs> Fall Out Boy. It is indeed Fall Out Boy. Woo, I got a B. Eight for ten. Some of those sound so silly that they like silly in a way that's not anime silly. And I'm like, oh, that has to be Fall Out Boy. Exactly. You had there were some other titles, uh, Sophomore Slump or Comeback of the Year. Uh, Fall Out Boy. It is indeed Fall Out Boy. Okay. You have uh, Save Rock and Roll. Fall Out Boy. That is indeed Fall Out Boy with okay. Elton John. Oh. Of all people, Elton John. I love Elton John. It's just interesting. <laughs> Elton John's a big uh, Tech Nine fan. Do you know that? Is he really? Yeah, uh, there. I saw a story because Tech Nine's local to Kansas City. I saw a story a couple weeks or a couple years ago about how Elton John went to a record store. I think nearby. Last time he came to town or whatever, and he specifically wanted all the Tech Nine records that they had because he was such a big fan. What a legend! Yeah, in I this know. house we love Elton John. Yeah. So Nick, what have you been playing this week? What have I been playing? Not as much as I would as I would like to. I can say that again. I've been really busy. Skyward Sword update. I played a little bit more. I only got through the dungeon that I left off at before last week's episode. Uh, fought the boss, and I was getting extremely frustrated, I'm sad to say. Uh, the gyro controls on the Joy-Con were starting to get on my nerves quite a bit. The boss that I was fighting, you have to do a very specific stab motion, just a forward thrust motion with the sword uh, to stab the, to the boss in the eye. And I was having an ungodly amount of trouble doing it, despite the fact that I knew full well that I was doing the exact motion that I needed to do. The gyro was not picking it up no matter how much I had to recalibrate, and it was an incredibly frustrating fight. And I finally got through it, and I I got through it without throwing my Joy-Con at the TV, thankfully. I got out, and to get back to the hub world of Skyloft, you get back on the bird that you ride. I don't remember what the birds are called, but you get back on the bird, and then you, you control the bird with the gyro aiming. And my gyro was messing up on me again because my bird just started free falling and I couldn't pick him back up no matter what I did. So I don't know if there was just an issue with my Joy-Con on that day, but the, the motion controls and the, the gyro aiming were starting to really get on my nerves. And I haven't picked up Skyward Sword since, which was five, six days ago now. That's a disheartening little update on Skyward Sword for me. Other than that, I haven't really been playing that much except the... Uh, the thing we're going to be talking about for our main topic here in a little bit, which I will refrain from talking about too much right now. I'm going to turn it back to you. What have you been playing the last week? Well, I have been playing a whole lot of not a lot. Um, oh. So I finished Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham. Oh, good. How was it? 
Listen, I actually really enjoyed it. I have stayed away from the game because I did not really like one certain aspect, which is the end game stuff, which is the open world, hub world kind of things. Instead of having one main area, like in certain games, like the first Lego Marvel game, they decided to go into different planets, which is cool, but they're really barren and they have this weird camera movement where it'll look like a globe so you'll just move and it'll stay like in a semicircle. and there were a lot of things that i didn't like about that system so there were things that i didn't like about that but actually playing through the story they do a lot of cool stuff especially with the lanterns they treat the lanterns with respect and it was actually really cool there were two missions that i expressly did not like which is when brainiac which is supposed to be the main villain of the game he shrinks the earth and so there are two missions when you're going around uh, different places and trying to fix things. And I did not enjoy those missions. Outside of that, I actually really enjoyed the game. I thought it had a nice sense of humor like most LEGO games do. Um, it's still my most disliked Robin. I don't like the Robin in LEGO Batman 2 or 3. Um, and it's Tim Drake. So, uh, Harley, if you're listening to this, maybe you know why I don't like Tim. But yeah, I finished that. Okay. You mentioned the humor of the Lego games. Uh, at, at a certain point in time, I started liking them a little less just because they switched to having full voice acting. Everyone says this. I don't like it as much. I just don't. I like the fact that they can create humor out of, I guess, almost like a silent film situation where you have to create it with physical, like physical comedy and programming. I think that's more fun than just having voice acting. I think it also gives the Lego games a bit more of their own character that they kind of lost once they switched to voice acting. Especially, I think the last one I actually played, the last couple I played, were the first Lego Marvel and Lego Force Awakens. And Force Awakens irked me, especially because they actually had access to all the, the uh, dialogue from the movie. And they had some new dialogue that they actually got Harrison Ford in the booth to record, which I still can't believe. I know. He must have saw the <laughs> paycheck from Blade Runner and said, sure, I'll do this. <laughs> yeah, it just it just... I still like those games, but it just... I don't know. The magic isn't quite there the way it used to be. But I'm sure part of that was me being a kid. But I do think it, they were funnier when they just had to be on their own and didn't didn't rely on the voice acting. I don't care either way. I think they're both still charming versions of the games. I completely understand if people don't, you know, vibe with them with the voice acting as much. But for me personally, I mean, I'm just there to smash bricks and hear the, the sound of collecting studs. So mm -hmm. they were for me either way. Oh, the... The best sound, the most satisfying sound in the world is the, when you collect a piece of, what is it, the mini kit? The mini kit. Oh, that, that's one of the most satisfying sounds in gaming. It really is. That <sighs> or collecting a blue stud. Ooh. Yep. Ooh. There are just certain Ooh. sounds that resonate with me. When you get that 1,000 from the blue stud. Oh, baby. Exactly. So outside of that, I started Hades, because that is yes. now on our favorite service, Xbox Game Pass. Game Pass, please sponsor us. We're not sponsored by them, but we talk about them so much. Yeah. Uh, so Hades, do you know what it is? I've heard, I've heard of it. It was a big deal last year. Got got some Game of the Year nominations. It was the big indie of the year. I've heard it's a roguelike. I've heard of that genre just from Hades. I don't, I hadn't heard the term before that. So roguelikes, uh, they come from the game Rogue, where it's a procedurally generated map each time, and each time you die, you get sent to the beginning and it starts off a completely separate new map and it's never the same each time okay and you're trying to get through the boss 
in order to like get to a safe point uh-huh. and continue on. So another good one that I like is Enter the Gungeon. It's the same thing. It's a roguelike where you're playing as a bullet. No, you're playing as a person and everything is surrounded to theme like guns. It's like you have sniper bullets that'll shoot one shots. You have shotgun bullets that'll shoot like a shotgun, so on and so forth. So everything is about guns and bullets and all these other things, and it has that kind of charm to it. But Uh each time you die, you get sent to the beginning of the dungeon, and you have to restart it and do something, you know, different to try to get further. Hades is the same way, but instead of that, it's a melee, mainly melee Greek mythology version of it. So you're playing as the son of Hades, and you're trying to get out of hell. And mm-hmm. as you're going along the way, different gods will help you and they'll give you certain things because they want to see you get out. Okay. So it's really, it's a cool story and it's really fun. It's, uh, I only played about an hour or two of it, but it has that roguelike of like, all right, I'll get the next run. The next run, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that yeah. and it'll be better. But sometimes it's just up to luck and what you end up getting dealt with. But it's really mm-hmm. good so far. I want to play more of it. I don't know if I'll end up finishing it, but I know that I want to put some more time into it. Yeah, I installed it as as soon as it came out on Game Pass. I haven't gotten around to playing it again. Just been busy. Uh, I'm looking forward to it just because I've heard great things about it, and I'm so glad that I don't have to buy it. I I was always looking for the sales on the Switch to see what 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 it cost, and it was usually too much for me. And this is the perfect scenario for me because now I don't have to pay for it. Well, I guess I'm technically paying for it, but you know. Yeah, I I know Game Pass. The last thing that I played was I started playing Sony's Marvel's Spider-Man Miles Morales again. Okay. So, I really enjoyed the first one. I might like Miles Morales more personally because that story just resonates with me a lot more. Sure. Um, It's such a good game. It's so fun. The combat is so smooth and fluid, and I like a lot of the enemy designs in it. A lot of the complaints with the story I can understand, but for me, it's just so good. It's so fun to web-sling around or use your Venom powers and uh, see how many combos you can get See using your different gadgets and stuff to see what you can combine and how you can disarm your enemies the most effectively. It's so good. It's so fun. I have no comment because I have not owned a PlayStation since the PS2, and I've never played any of the main exclusive franchises on PlayStation. Yeah. I, I figured as much. I heard Miles Morales was great. I, I heard conflicting reports on whether people liked it more than the first one. The one from, what, 2018? Yeah, because that's the same year God of War came out. Yeah, uh, I heard conflicting opinions as far as that goes. Uh, everything seemed to be pretty positive. I heard it's really short. That's the one thing I heard. It goes about eight hours, eight or nine hours. Mm-hmm. So it's shorter for sure. I would have liked it to have been longer, but with everything considered, I think it still works. Yeah, especially because it was, I think it was the big PS5 launch title, that and the uh, Demon Souls. Oh, Demon Souls, that's right. I was thinking of the big PS5 launch titles, that was the other one. But I think the big one was Miles Morales, and for a launch title, it seemed kind of kind of bare bones, I guess, in that sense. I think it's a good launch title, but there needed to be more, because there has not been a whole lot to supplement that year, and Sony is not looking great for the fall either, so... No, Xbox Xbox has a little more. They've had they haven't had like the best year since launch, but I feel like they've been a bit more consistent. No, uh, I think Xbox has definitely been giving people more reasons to come back versus Sony, which hasn't. I mean, you have Ratchet and Clank, and then what else do you have for the year? There isn't a whole lot for real. But I mean, 
you know, it is what it is. Video game companies are going to do what they're going to do. I don't, I mean, I have a quote unquote preference, but I enjoy playing on both consoles. Yeah. Once I get to a point where I'm more financially secure, I do definitely. And, and once they have a stock for one, uh, I definitely want to get a PS5 and mm -hmm. sort of go back and play at least some of those series that I've missed out on. Because I know there's a lot of series that I've missed out on that I really want to get to. Yeah, and for you, it's good because they have the PlayStation Now, which is like their Xbox Live feature. And mm -hmm. when you sign up for that, you automatically get access to, you're getting access to, I think, Doom, Last of Us, Uncharted 4, God of War, Spider-Man, Horizon. I think you're getting access to pretty much all the big exclusives from the yeah. PS4 era. So that's really good for you, and that's at a good price. It's a good entry. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm looking forward to once I... Not once I switch, because I'm gonna I'm gonna play both, and I'll probably be primarily an Xbox gamer. And I guess if we want to do a segue, the reason I'm gonna be primarily an Xbox gamer is because I'm a big fan of Halo. Halo, Halo, Halo. Beyonce, don't sue us. Not that Halo. We're finally talking about it. We are talking about it. I mean, it's been two episodes, but we are finally talking about Halo. Well, the first episode we said we talk about next week, and then the next week came, and we ran out of time, and we said we'll talk about it next week, and we ran longer than we thought we would for this episode. If we're gonna, if we're gonna be transparent with you guys, uh, but we're still gonna have a nice meaty conversation about Halo because I've been wanting to talk about Halo for a long time. Take it away, Nick. I've never talked about it at length with you. I think before we get into me, because I have a lot to talk about. What's your Halo story? I don't know it. I don't think. My Halo story starts with Halo Three. As okay. I'm sure a lot of people's Halo story does. I played Halo 3 in my house because my brother had left his Xbox. And so he said, sure, play through Halo. So I played through Halo 3 by myself. Then I had gone to some friends' houses and they all had Halo Reach. I remember one of my friends got the Halo Reach Xbox at the time. Yeah. So he had that Xbox. So that's how we would play it. And that was really fun. I played that at about like seven different houses because we all enjoyed Halo Reach. I didn't get to play 4 until much later on because I didn't have my own 360. So I was, you know, beholden to other people. Mm -hmm. But I did play it, you know, at friends' houses and stuff whenever we'd have like sleepovers or hangouts, whenever. And I actually am one of the people that doesn't mind Halo 4 as much. Okay. And I played Halo 5. I'll say this. Halo 5's campaign starts off really strong, and then it just completely fizzles out. Yeah, um, I'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, but I actually do really like the gunplay in Halo 5. I think that, uh, like, 3v3 mode that they had, I think it was SWAT. Breakout. I think that... Breakout, that's what it is. It's not SWAT. Breakout. I think Breakout was actually really fun, and I'm kind of sad that, like, they just took it out. And it's like a special rotation yeah. thing. And so now it's back to being, you know, Slay or CTF or Big Team Battle and all this stuff, which are good modes. Mm -hmm. But I actually really enjoyed the way that, that Breakout was handled. It was a nice competitive feel. And now I'm excited for Halo Infinite. I have played through Combat Evolved. I played through Combat Evolved on a PC years, years, years oh, ago. Oh, the PC version. Because a friend of mine had it on a flash drive and that and we'd plug it into one of the computers where our parents worked. And we played it through there. And then I gotcha. ended up playing Halo 2 because my best friend, Juan. Juan, I hope you listen to this. Love you, brother. He brought it over to my house. And so I have his Halo 2 just sitting there. But I played through that with him. And I've played through the Master Chief collection with friends, you know, for nights and stuff. So I'm not 
the hugest fan of Halo, and by that I mean like I haven't done I haven't dug deep into the lore. I haven't played through all of them super extensively and stuff, but I genuinely enjoy Halo. Like if someone says, "Hey, you want to play Halo?" I'll be like, "Oh yeah, of course." It it's an instant, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I guess it's my turn. I've got a bit a bit more of a story, so I apologize if I go on too long here. Um, but my story starts with Halo 2 in the fall of 04. Uh, I think Thanksgiving of that year is the specific event that I'm about to talk about. So uh, my parents used to host Thanksgiving at our house, or all the holidays at our house. And so all the family was over. We have a big family. My dad's the ninth of nine kids. So he's got, I have a lot of cousins. So all my cousins were over. And I don't think they asked for permission, but they set up a bunch of TVs and a bunch of original Xboxes in my room right after Halo 2 came out. And they did a Halo 2 LAN party in my room. And I had the flu at the time, so I was miserable otherwise, but I was enamored by watching them play Halo 2 with each other. I got to play a little bit. They handed me the controller at one point. I didn't know what it was. This is my first exposure to shooters, but I knew I was having fun. I knew I liked it. And I think a few months later, my dad bought an Xbox at first for himself, and he never really played it. It ended up becoming mine over time, but he bought Halo 2 with it, and I started playing that campaign, and I played through it must have been a thousand times in my life that got me probably heavily into gaming as a whole but especially into shooters i became a big shooter person after that after that i played the i played combat evolve with my cousin uh, we did a co-op campaign run through of that and i loved it to this i guess not to this day but until fairly recently i never went back and played through combat evolved because the flood stuff in the second half of combat evolved scared the hell out of me even even though i was playing on co-op I was six or seven when I was playing that, and it was scaring me. So the second half of Halo 1, I never went back and played through. I stopped after the fish, fifth mission whenever I went to play it, just because I remember the flood scaring me. Years later, I finally played it. I played the anniversary version, and then I played it a bunch on Master Chief Collection. I didn't have internet as a kid, I'll say that. I didn't actually have Wi-Fi until 2013, uh, so I never got to play Halo online. I just played the campaigns, and, and then Halo 3 rolled around. I remember that being a big event. And I wanted a 360 badly. I didn't get a 360 until years later. Uh, but one of my cousins had it. And uh, my cousins are all older than me just because my dad's the ninth of nine kids. That's kind of how that ends up working out. Uh, so they would invite my parents over for parties. They were, they would be downstairs drinking, doing whatever. I'd be upstairs on the 360. I'd be playing Halo 3. I played through that campaign a bunch at their house. And then when I finally got my 360 a few years later, I, I bought Halo 3. I played through that campaign a bunch. I just fell in love with that game in particular over the years. And that fandom just solely existed with campaign. I never really played. I couldn't play online. I never really played local multiplayer with anyone. And then Halo 4 came out in 2012. And I had a second 360 that a cousin had given me that I didn't really get much use out of. I ended up selling that so I could buy Halo 4 literally just to play the campaign because I still didn't have internet. Uh, so I played through that campaign a bunch in the first few months. Then 2013 rolls around. I finally get Wi-Fi at my house. And Halo 4 is the game that gets me into online gaming, I guess. That's that that's the one for me. There are other games I was playing, but that was the one that I kept coming back to. So when we talk about Halo 4 in a little bit, uh, I know there's some mixed opinions of Halo 4, but I've got a real soft spot for the multiplayer in that game because that got me into online gaming in a big way. And I played the hell out of that multiplayer, and I still like going back to it today. Halo 5 came out in, what, 2015? And I was super hyped for that. I had some mixed opinions at this point about Halo 4, but I was I was excited for 5, and it, it ended up disappointing me in most ways. I'll, I'll, I'll get, up, get that out of the way. Uh, 
there was some stuff I liked, especially on the multiplayer end of things, but I kind of fell off of five for the most part about maybe a year after it came out. Uh, but I guess before that, if I'm going to backtrack a little bit, uh, I got my Xbox one a few months before five came out just cause I knew it was coming out and I wanted to get one. And Master Chief Collection was the one that came with it. That was the the game that came pre-installed. Fell back in love with the whole series at that point. I played through all those campaigns. I was finally able to play the older games on multiplayer that I could never play before. So I played a lot of 1, 2, and 3. I got to play on Blood Gulch for the first time. And that was kind of a magical experience, even though, if you recall, for the first several years, Master Chief, Master Chief Collection was kind of broken. Finally got to play all those games that I loved online, and it was kind of a magical experience. And since that game's gotten fixed, that's been one of my go-to multiplayer games ever since. Uh, so that's that's a broad history of my Halo story. What would you like to talk about specifically? Is there anything you, you would want to talk about in particular? Let's start off with, like, the multiplayer experience. Because everyone, I feel like Halo is one of those games where the campaign is just as good as the multiplayer. I think some of the others that sort of go along with that would be Battlefield Bad Company 2. And in my opinion, the first two Black Ops games and Modern Warfare 2. I think those are sort of the gold standard of a good FPS shooter campaign and multiplayer. And I, I, I'd agree with those picks. I think Halo is just one of those ones where it's everything translates over in a good way because they have the maps that are inspired by some of the locations that you go through in the Halo games. But then they have a lot that are just made and are just really intricate i know that there's one in halo one i can't remember what it was but it's like 27 different portals that you go through and there's like three different islands and stuff that you go through and sort of exploring the way that they can use that and the different environments that they're in is just really it's a testament to how good bungie is yeah that i find halo one multiplayer infinitely fascinating because it's so simple on the surface if you've ever played halo one multiplayer especially on master chief collection Everybody who plays that, they will instantly press Y, they'll switch to the pistol, you get three headshots with the pistol, and you got a kill. It might be four, I'm not sure. That's how everyone plays Halo 1, so I think the interesting stuff in Halo 1 is how they designed the maps, and the map design was super simple, because my understanding of the development history of Halo 1 was that multiplayer wasn't actually a feature until fairly late in development, so a lot of the maps are super simple. And a map like the one you're talking about, and it kills me that I can't remember the name of it, a map like that was pretty much entirely bolstered by the one design idea that they had, the one concept that they had to tie it all together. Because aesthetically, it's nothing special. And in terms of layout, it's also nothing special. But they had the one idea of all these portals connecting everything to make that map interesting because they didn't have time to properly design any of the maps that they had. I think if you look at it from that lens, it's pretty amazing how good the maps in Halo 1 actually are. I think that's really a good point because when you look at all the different Halo multiplayers, each one did something different. So in the first Halo, it starts off very simple. But by the time you get to Halo 2, you have dual wielding. So you're dual wielding a bunch of different weapons and you have, I believe it's in Halo 2, we have the map with the giant wheel that's in the middle. That's called Zanzibar in Halo 2 and they remade that in 3. Yes, Zanzibar is a fantastic map. It's just one of the classic maps of everyone trying to go into that uh, ring that's in the middle. But seeing the different ways that you can utilize dual wielding and finding out which combo is actually going to be better. And then in Halo 3, they introduce your pickups and stuff, right? Yeah, the equipment is what they call it in that one. Equipment, that's what it is. So they introduce that. And even like with Reach, you get 
different versions of equipment or you get introduced to firefight in the way that that mode works and you get to halo 4 which is very controversial with the way that your loadouts actually worked and sort of getting to decide your weapons and the equipment that you want to use instead of going into a match with everyone being on the equal playing field and then picking up power weapons as you go along yeah and then seeing the way that halo 5 works with um instead of going back to halo 4 where you're picking out your specific loadouts halo 5 was from what i remember halo 5 was predetermined loadouts yes that was that was it was like the the original games in that sense one thing i like that they did with halo 5 uh and again i'll get more into 5 later uh is that they clearly separated the competitive multiplayer from the casual multiplayer they had the warzone modes that were in their own area they had a social section uh, at least they do now. I know they, they've changed a lot, but they had the social section of the arena multiplayer. So if you wanted to play Slayer, but it wasn't ranked, you could do that. And then they had the ranked version. And in those versions, you would have the predetermined loadout. So you'd start with the assault rifle and the and the pistol usually. And then you'd have your pickups on the map. That's kind of how Halo's always worked. And I think that's when it works at its strengths is when everybody starts on an equal playing field you know exactly how the other person how everyone every other person in the game is starting and it's up to you to figure out where the pickups are figure out what position you need to use and work to your advantage and i think that's where halo thrives and that's i think a failing of of four in that regard to see how halo 4 actually ended up affecting the other halos in making them go back because there's always this idea and call of duty did the same thing of all right, we're going to go forward a little bit. All right, now we're going to try to go forward even more. And then you get to a point where it's too much, and then people start to be like, but this isn't what the game is. And so seeing the way that Halo 5 brought it back while trying some other things, like the sprint and the slam abilities, to see how those would actually play out, and then coming to Halo Infinite, which from everything that we've seen is very much classic Halo of you start off with the same weapons and it's up to you to find the different power weapons. And instead of being on the floor, now they're on a wall, so it makes them more defined. And sort of seeing the way that pickups actually do affect combat. And are you going to prioritize spending the time to go pick this up or equip this over shield? Or are you just going to want to go for the kill? Do you aim down sight? Do you not? And seeing the different ways that those actually affect combat. And it's interesting to go from Halo 4, when everything was very Call of Duty and then coming now to Halo Infinite, where it seems to be a lot more Halo again. Yeah, I think Infinite, at least the way it looks, I haven't I haven't paid as super close attention to the trailers and any of that. I did see the multiplayer reveal. It looks like in terms of core gameplay, it's similar to 5 in that it's still prioritizing speed, and you have some armor abilities. I, I don't remember what they all are off the top of my head. Uh, but the way everything is laid out is very classic Halo, and I think that's something that people are probably going to prefer. Because I think, and I've talked to friends about this over the years too, it was logical for Halo to get faster. It didn't make sense that a super soldier couldn't run for the longest time. I'm glad that it sped up in that sense. It makes sense that, that the game should speed up. I think they went they went a little too far in that direction. I think 3, personally, is the perfect speed of Halo. Even though you don't have sprint, I think everything j- is just paced perfectly. But 4 and 5 went a little too far in the other direction. Of It feel, feels like they made maps a little too big just to account for the fact that everybody moves around quicker and they don't have as much identity because of that. It's interesting that you say that three, everyone has their own favorite Halo, you know, for a lot of people, it is actually three or two, 
for me, I'm a big fan of Reach. I just think Reach nails pretty much everything. I enjoy a lot of the maps in Reach and the different uh, mechanics that were actually introduced into Reach. Firefight, maybe I'm just clouded by that, but I went back and played it uh, when it came to uh, MCC. It's just, it's so good, in my opinion. I feel like that's, for me personally, the best feeling Halo. I like Reach. That was one I forgot to mention. I was going through my whole history with Halo. The two that I didn't uh, I didn't buy until years after they came out were Reach and ODST. ODST we can talk about later. I don't know if you played it. But Reach was the one that got all my friends into gaming. So before I was before I had online gaming, they had uh, their Xboxes and they played online. And a lot of them, when they got their Xboxes, Reach was the new Halo game. And that was the one that, that gave them their start. So for a lot of them, that's what Halo is. They didn't they didn't start with one or two or three or even ODST. That's what Halo is to them. So for them, at least from when they started to now, Halo has always had sprint. It's always had the armor abilities. It's always had all that stuff. I've got a different viewpoint than that. I like a lot of what Reach added, but I also think a lot of it is sort of a halfway point to Halo. what Halo 4 was in that it started adding things that complicated the game in a way that I don't think helped the gameplay. So it's the same way. Everyone says the best Halo is the one that they grew up with. So I completely understand that. Well, I guess and when it comes to campaign, I'm sure I feel that way. But my viewpoint on multiplayer is, is, isn't is necessarily clouded in that same way. Because I started playing all those games at the same time. At least uh, Reach and 4 and 3. Uh, those were the ones I could play online when I got my internet. All the other ones I didn't play until later. So 1 and 2 I'd never played online. And 5 obviously wasn't out yet. So it wasn't like I had played the online multiplayer of any of those games before I played Reaches, but I still, even playing it then, I still felt that the armor abilities and the other stuff that they added, they did detract from the gameplay a little bit. And I think my least favorite aspect of Reach is that the multiplayer maps are all campaign locations, other than I think the DLC maps that got added. The multiplayer was all campaign locations in terms of the original Bungie created maps, and then the rest came from Forge. Uh, which we can talk about Forge later as something that enhanced the Halo community a lot. But I think the over-reliance on Forge and uh, the campaign, the campaign maps are making up what Reach's multiplayer was. That kind of took away a lot from its identity to me because I felt like I've been, I've been to all these places before and I know them with a story context and playing on them out of context isn't nearly as interesting to me. That I do understand. I do understand the idea of, oh, we're just playing campaign maps but in multiplayer so that one i do understand but for me personally i just feel like it's a it's not like as controversial as four a lot of people do enjoy reach as in as a whole uh but like for me personally it is just the one that i remember so much about reach and it might be like i've just played that one more or i have more fond memories but like i can remember very distinct ways that characters meet their demise in reach it is such a memorable story and especially the multiplayer like i said it the way that i can just like use my battle rifle or for instance put on my overshield while taking out grunts in firefight because that's what i played a lot of i just find that way more satisfying than i do uh flying from treetops in three personally that's just a personal thing but i do understand what you're saying about the maps just feeling like oh it's just the campaign, but with multiplayer people coming in. 
yeah, it just feels like I don't know the the whole development history. It just feels like corners were cut a little bit in that regard. I wonder if they had more time. I'm just theorizing here because it may just be that that was their idea from the start, but no other Halo game was like that. So I feel inclined to believe that if they had more time, more money, whatever the case was, that they would have created some more unique maps for it. But I also get the the flip side of that where they knew, especially after 3 came out and they started with Forge, that Forge was going to be a big thing that they could, after launch, the devs themselves could go in, use the Forge that they created, create some maps that were either remakes of old maps or just make something new in the Forge that they knew so well. And they could have the community get get involved and the best community maps could become maps for the actual game. I like that, that side of things, even though... I, you know, you can all you can obviously tell what's a forge map. I think that's always been apparent in a Halo game is that you can tell if something's a forge map just because the way they look, you know how how all the different pieces look. But I do like that they ended up getting the community more involved in Reach because that kind of started in three and they took it to the next level in Reach. Because I don't know about you, but some of my fondest Halo memories are of Reach and it's playing custom games with my friends. I agree with that. Wasn't Griffball from from Forge? Uh, I think it was. So they, they added, this was in three, they added the foundry map, I think, and it's kind of a blank slate map. It's very basic. And I think the idea with that was that they wanted to turn that into a forge map and they gave you a big canvas to explore and someone created uh, a very basic map. And the idea was that you had all gravity hammers and uh, I think it was either all ball or assault is what the game mode technically was. I think it was assault. And they turn that into Griff Ball, which, if you know Red vs. Blue, was a reference to Griff from that show. Yeah, it was it was big in 3. They brought it back in Reach, and they brought it back in 4, and I think they ended up bringing it back in 5. I know that they brought back Infected for 5, which was another... I'm pretty sure that was another Community Forge game mode that ended up coming into the rest of them. I think they might have had that as a, as a developer mode in 3, but I know it definitely started in 3, whether it was a community thing or not. And then... It was an official mode in, in uh, Reach. Then they made it into Flood mode in 4, which wasn't as fun. And then they brought back a more traditional Infection mode in 5, which I thought was pretty fun. Yeah, so Forge is definitely one of those things of... I mean, Forge ended up coming to things like uh, GTA 5, where people started making their own custom things in there as well. So Forge really is one of those... I mean, listen, we're talking about level editors and stuff. Let's go back to the OG, which is LEGO Indiana Jones 2, The Adventure Continues, where you were able to make your own LEGO level. Okay, in all seriousness, Forge, it's legendary. I mean, you can't have a Halo game without Forge. Halo 5, Halo 5 tried... And then everyone was like, give us Forge. And they're like, all right, fine, we'll give you Forge. And it it took them a long time, but they did end up getting Forge. And then they've already said Halo Infinite will launch with Forge. Yeah, the, the decision to launch 5 without Forge or Big Team Battle was certainly a choice. Well, they wanted to try, uh, was it Warzone? Was that the name of the mode? Yeah. They wanted to try Warzone to try to replace Big Team, not replace. Yes, replace. They wanted to replace Big Team Battle with Warzone, which is its whole other game mode that I actually enjoyed. I thought it it's, was pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's fun for what it is. I think it gets a bit repetitive. Like I can't play more than maybe two games of Warzone Warzone at a time before sure. I get bored. The 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 structure is pretty similar. It gets it just gets a little, a little quick. I like the idea of it though. Yeah, I think it's actually pretty fun. I think it's a fun mode that was 
implemented and i actually wouldn't mind seeing it come back if it's a little bit quicker like if there wasn't a whole long process that you had to go through with warzone i actually did enjoy it but i mean you're trying to get rid of big team battle and that's one of the just community staples that has to be in there you know because it's it's Uh such a unique mode compared to so many other shooters especially like call of duty I th- yeah. When you think of like big all out warfare and stuff, you think of big team battle with Halo and all the Battlefield games because those are the two that really utilize big maps, big vehicles yeah. and character skill uh to sort of determine who's going to win the war and it feels like all out warfare. So when you go into something like Warzone where it's you mm-hmm. against NPCs and stuff, it yeah. loses it a bit because now you're not really in a war you're in a level yeah i don't like the the pve elements of warzone because like you said you lose the fact that you are still technically fighting against an enemy team you can kill them and get points for it and all that but you're fighting the other stuff you're in a race to get the last the last bullet on a on a big boss so your team can get the points on it and i've never i didn't like that angle of it at all like it doesn't matter who did the most damage. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's literally whoever gets the last bullet that takes the last HP away from a boss. That's that's the person whose team is going to get the, the points for the kill. And I think that's incredibly stupid. Yeah. No, I feel you. It's like it is competition against the other team, but also why is my competition against the other team not actually just direct competition against the other team? Yeah, no, it's completely fair. Okay, so we, we've we've talked about a lot here. Do you want to go through game by game and just give some general thoughts? Sure. Uh, let me pull this up. I'm pretty sure I know all of them. We're going to ignore the Halo Wars games and the mobile ones. Yeah, I haven't really played those. Uh, I, I can I can go through them for you if you want. I know I'm like the yeah. back of my hand. So we'll start off with Combat Evolved. I think Combat Evolved is not only was it a great way to introduce the Xbox, but it was a great way to introduce first-person shooting mechanics because you had doom and you had things like wolfenstein but there was nothing like halo at the time and i think it just does such a great job of creating a setting for this sci-fi world that still has a lot of real world war elements to it and i think that comes through especially good in the first uh combat evolved i think master chief is a great protagonist in that game and the relationship that he forms with cortana is really not deserved, but like you can understand their relationship very easily in that first game. I think the score is fantastic and that goes yeah. across all of them, but leading into Halo 2, that main theme where you get that remix with the guitar solos and stuff, oh, boom, fantastic. Mm-hmm. That is some of the best shit ever. It is. Yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of Halo 1 for the most part. It's not my favorite in the series. It's probably closer to the bottom for me. But it's obviously revolutionary in all the ways that we know. It sort of revolutionized shooters on a console, especially it kind of created that sci-fi shooter genre. You had shooters like GoldenEye Perfect Dark on the N64, but those were single stick. I think the dual joysticks that the Xbox controller had really helped revolutionize shooters because you could move with one and then you could aim with the other. And your, your N64 shooters didn't have that. And I think that's a big reason why Halo was so good. The campaign just works, even though they reuse they reuse a lot of the levels in the second half of the game. Um, it's super basic, but you you understand what's going on. You you understand what you're fighting for. Um, there's there's moments that don't really work as well, at least to me. But the campaign's pretty fun from start to finish. Uh, like you said, Master Master Chief is kind of a great blank slate protagonist. 
Uh, Cortana is a great sidekick. It's really effective. The the flood reveal on that game in particular. I don't think the flood are ever as cool or as intimidating as they are in the first Halo. And I think just when that game's starting to reach a bit of a lull, the flood bring it back, and that gives it enough momentum to get through to the end. Like we said, with the multiplayer, it's it's pretty basic, but it's interesting what they were able to do with the designs of the maps and, and everything like that, because they were so limited in terms of development time and resources, and I'm kind of amazed that it turned out as well as it did. Uh, but you were talking about Halo 2. Yeah, so Halo 2 took a lot of what Halo 1 did as a foundation and just sort of blew it up to a scale that was reasonable and made a lot of sense story-wise you had a lot of good interactions between for instance the arbiter and his story and sort of being able to actually play as the quote-unquote enemy faction um that's really cool and something that they haven't done since to my knowledge and it's something that i wish that they would bring back is being able to play as other forces other than master chief that isn't sergeant Locke. listen we don't need Locke back <laughs> no no but uh, along with that, bringing in the different weapons and the way that the Arbiter actually does play differently to Chief, I think that's really cool. And I wish that they would bring some of those things back. As I mentioned earlier, they brought back, they brought in dual wielding. And while it's not the most useful thing, it's still just really cool to go around with two SMGs as Master Chief and just mowing down enemies and stuff. As I said earlier, the score it's fantastic. I just think that Halo 2 is... Yeah, I think each of the Halo games get better up until, like, ODST and Reach, and that's when you can say, like, oh, then they sort of top out, and then they get lower. Yeah, uh, I, I love Halo 2. That was, like like I said earlier, that was my childhood favorite. Uh, that campaign still has a soft spot in my heart. I played through all the campaigns earlier this year, uh, other than 5, which I played enough. I know how I feel about 5. And my opinions on a lot of them have changed. Two isn't as good as I used to think it was. Um, I can see a lot of the cracks in the armor. I can really tell now that how troubled the development was in two. I don't know if you've heard the horror stories about the development of two, uh, but they had a lot of content that was cut. They had a bunch of levels that were planned. They sort of had to cobble the story together out of the levels that they were able to keep in. And I think in that from that standpoint, you can tell a little bit, but it still works all it all works together really well. I think the pacing of the game is really helped by the fact that you go back and forth between Chief and the Arbiter, and the Arbiter has a much more interesting story in that in that game. Chief sort of takes a back seat. There's not much for him to do. The story is with the breakup of the Covenant, and I think that's told really well, even though it's a little brief. Just in any story, if you can add context to the other side of, of any equation, you're going to enhance your story greatly just because you can not humanize because they're aliens, but you can flesh out and greater characterize the other side that like you said like you said earlier they're the people that we've just been shooting at they're the aliens they're the bad guys they have the red reticle you shoot at them that's all you know about them they're just enemies to fight in a shooter game and i'm glad that they flesh it out beyond that I, i'll never forget the first time i played as the arbiter i skipped the cutscene because i was six years old and i didn't care about cutscenes back then and i saw the elites were there and i saw that the reticle was green and i'm like they say they're good guys but I know they're not good guys, so I killed them all, and then I realized that I had an energy sword in my hand, and that I had, what, three or four fingers, and that wasn't correct, and I finally realized what was going on, and it kind of blew my mind as a kid, and I'll never forget the feeling that I had then. Playing through Halo 2, like, a second time and beyond, 
with that full context. It's really interesting what they did with it. I don't think the Arbiter levels are that great. I think that's where the gameplay kind of falters a little bit. Just the pacing and structure of the levels. I think the chief levels are more fun to play through. But the story with Arbiter is really great. And it all comes together pretty well. It's kind of a shitty ending. I don't know if we want to talk about the ending of 2 at all. It's kind of legendarily bad. It's not great, but it, it works. And it, it, it's okay enough to get to Halo 3, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, like you said, the score is phenomenal in pretty much all these games. I think it falls off a bit after uh, Marty O'Donnell leaves after Reach. But the score in every game, especially 2 and 3 for me, those are the standouts. Those, that's that's where the Halo music is at their best, I think. Other than one more that I'll talk about later, actually. Ooh. The multiplayer is really great. I, I've it, It's kind of, I don't know, it's a little janky, but in a way that's really charming. Like, every time I play Master Chief Collection, which is apparently the Windows Vista version of the game, it's not the original Xbox version that they're emulating, that's where a lot of the jank comes from. So, like, I don't know if you played too much of the original Halo 2 on MCC. When you go to melee somebody, the melee physics are really off. There's something kind of charming about that. In the same way that one being Halo One being so basic is kind of charming, but the jankiness of two I find I find really fun. It can be frustrating sometimes, but I see why everybody loved that multiplayer so much back in the day. All right, so going on to Halo Three, I think the thing that really just stands out to me with Halo Three is all of the marketing campaign that was behind this game, um, where they were using miniatures. And they were sort of shooting them in a way that looked like a battlefield. And I believe that one was Believe, right? Yes, I think Halo so. Halo 3's whole thing was Believe. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was Discover the Truth. I think that was 5. That was 5. Finish the Fight was also the big, Finish the the big Halo 3 tagline. That's what it was. Because this was, it wasn't like the big conclusion, but like this is the big war that's going on. And I think 3 yeah. just really gets that to a T. I think the mm-hmm. marketing is one of those things where it's like it's not representative of the gameplay, but it's representative of the yeah, tone the first in the experience yes. that's going to happen. And I think really it just good nails. It and I think the multiplayer is earlier, just legendary. The- Everyone remembers the multiplayer in three, even if it's not my favorite. I still know it's one. It's the best. Well, it's not the best, but it's it's legendary. It's one of the greatest of all time. You have so many legendary maps in the way that all the weapons were fine-tuned in 3. It's 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 arena shooting at arguably its best. And I just think everyone has the right to love 3 as much as they do. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't have as much to say about it. Yep. Yeah, three's three's my my undisputed fave. Uh, we can rank them later if we want. Uh, but campaign and multiplayer, I think it's the best of both. Uh, you talked about the the marketing and the hype around it. That's maybe more than any other game in my life, other than maybe GTA Five. Halo Three, when it came out, felt like an event for everyone because like the 360 was was pretty popular in the first half of its life uh, before PS3 started catching up. And it came out at the right time. The marketing was there. The hype was there. Halo was as hot as it ever was at that point in time. It was huge when it came out. And I think that I think creates the fond memories that people have for it. A lot of them, because even if they didn't play the game that much, they remember how big it was and how fun it was at first. And I think that's that's a feeling that a lot of people take with them. I didn't I don't have that as much because I, I didn't play it properly until years later. But I think the campaign is phenomenal top to bottom. Uh, the story is 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 pretty. It, it it works for what it is. I don't think it's the best. 
necessarily. Um, it works for what it is. I think the pacing of the levels from from beginning of the game to the end of the game is the strongest from mission to mission that they have in the series. I think the gameplay is incredibly well balanced. It's well paced. They know they know when a level is going to lull and they'll bring in something interesting to keep you going, whether it's a little boss battle with hunters or it's a vehicle section. I think that I think three has the best timing of any of that. And I love the way it concludes that Warthog run at the end, which we didn't talk about with one. Halo 1 and 3 have those big famous Warthog sections at the very end where you're just racing against the clock as the ring is exploding. And every, even to this day as I play it, I know the route by like the back of my hand. I know how to get through it. It's never any sweat for me, but that still gets the adrenaline pumping. You get the music swelling up in the background. That's as magical as gaming gets for me. And it's that way to this very day. Uh, there's there's some shortcomings like the I, I, I still don't like that the Cortana sections where she gets in your head and she slows the gameplay down. It's always at a lull in the gameplay, so it's not like you're getting screwed over in a battle, but it's still kind of annoying, especially replaying it. You just want to get through it. But all in all, I think the campaign's great. And the multiplayer, like you said, is is legendary. Uh, all those maps are, are all pretty, pretty iconic in their own part. I think you, you could make arguments for some in one and two that are that are better. Uh, or at least more more legendary in their own right, but I just think the the core gameplay all comes together sublimely in in three's multiplayer, and I think it works great for big team. I think it works great for just your regular four v four Slayer. Uh, we talked about Forge. I think the community features really those came at the perfect time too, because you had Halo peaking in popularity, and you had these features like Forge and the theater mode and stuff like that. Online capabilities were getting better. You were able to bring people together to enjoy Halo in a, a greater sense than they'd ever been brought together before. And I have just have the fondest memories of 3. I think a lot of people do. They're, they feel the same as me in that regard, whether it's because they played it or just because they remember how big it was at the time. And that's that's the one that I think will always be my favorite, even if the ones below it go up or down in my estimation over time. I think 3 is going to be at the top, the top for me forever. The next one is ODST. Uh, have you played ODST? I may have played ODST, but I don't remember it. ODST is with Buck, right? Yes, that's where he gets introduced. He comes yes. back in later games. In 5, and he gets back in... I think he's in Halo Wars at some point, but yeah. That's he's in Reach. Buck. He's in one mission of Reach. Yes. Uh, that's with Buck, played by Nathan Fillion. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone loves Nathan Fillion. Well, yeah. I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people love <laughs> Nathan Fillion. Love him in everything. Yeah. Um, I don't have a good memory about ODST. That's one that I have to go back and replay. So yeah. you take this one away. Yeah, I didn't play ODST for the longest time. That was one that just eluded me. I finally saw it at a GameStop in 2015, I think, several years after it came out. I played it. I enjoyed it. I didn't really think about it again for a few years after that. I bought it again for Master Chief Collection to play it in 60 FPS and uh, in a better resolution. It looks much better. Uh, I think the problem with ODST uh, is that it's a little too dark when, when it wants the mood to be dark. In terms of like actual visual aesthetics, it's a little too dark and you can't see very well. Uh, but I finally played it again on Master Chief Collection. I played it a few times in the last few years. It just grows on me every single time. I think in terms of capturing a mood and an atmosphere, that's where Halo's at its best. Uh, that's the best of any in the series. I think this is where the best Halo score is, specifically in the missions where you're going through the Mombasa streets as the rookie. The, the regular missions, they their music in those is fine. I don't think it gets to the level of the older games. 
the the melancholy music that plays when you're when you're going through the streets all alone as the rookie you're alone you're a silent protagonist you are just you feel the solitude of the situation more than more than you do in any other game and i love it for that it makes those little those transition missions as the rookie that's what makes the game for me even though it's not where the gameplay shines as much the the mood and the atmosphere that that the game captures that's what i that's what i always take with me and i do like the the regular missions for pretty much from top to bottom it it progresses really quickly the pacing is really nice uh, the performances from uh, people like nathan fillion like you said uh the dynamics from between everyone is all really good i i like that this game exists i guess i like that they did a little it's technically its own game but it's kind of an expansion i like that they did something like that a little side story that kind of exists in its own bubble like i forgot to mention it earlier when i was going through all the games because it's kind of in its own little world but i think it's a, a really important inclusion for the franchise and i think it's also got a lot of fondness with it specifically with that score and you mentioned firefight earlier this was the one that actually introduced firefight uh i've only played it once or twice on master chief collection i never played it before that uh but it seems like a fan favorite mode that i've never been personally too into this was the game they introduced that they needed a little something beyond the campaign and that's what they brought and obviously people enjoyed it because it's still to this day around in the series in some capacity because they brought it back in five in its own in its own way uh, I, I love ODST for what it is. I think it's a good little inclusion to the series. Yeah, I, I, I'm i sure that's true. I know that a lot of people really love 3 and ODST together because they're not one in the same, but I mean, a lot of people sort of correlate them together. Yeah, they use the same They use the same engine, I'm pretty sure. Like, I'm almost positive they do. And I think at least the physical copy that I bought, the, the disc two of it is... A Halo 3 multiplayer disc, so it would take you to the regular multiplayer of the original Halo 3. So they were obviously connected in that regard. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Halo 3 ODST, so... Yes, that's what it's yeah. called, officially. Even though it takes place during Halo 2. Mm -hmm. So, moving on from ODST, we go to Reach, which, as I said, is my personal yep. favorite. I think the story with Noble Team is just so fun it's so nice, not like nice. It's heartbreaking and stuff. But I've, but I really, it's pretty, it's pretty enjoy depressing. that team dynamic, and I think it's really cool to go from, oh, we're the Master Chief, you know, going through this as the savior of the Halo rings and yada yada, versus coming to be part of Noble Team, where each person does something interesting. I remember that uh, it's like the second or third mission where you're going around as a sniper in the night. It's such a memorable mission. You have so many good things. That ending, for me personally, I really enjoyed it. There's one where you're flying... I don't remember if it's a pelican, but you're flying one of the ships. Yeah. and I, I, uh, I don't think it's a pelican, but something else. I think it's a falcon. It's not. I don't think you ever... I don't think you ever fly a pelican. It might be a falcon. You do in 4, actually. You fly a pelican in 4. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's You do that, like, awesome takeoff. Anyway... Uh, mm -hmm. just Reach is so good in my opinion. I remember collecting like all the action figures at the time and stuff. Each one had its own look, even if it was to, you know, sell toys or whatever, like you could just get so much character from all of them in my opinion. Like you understood 
Emil from his face. You could understand a lot of the heavier characters just by the way that they held their shoulders, the like the way that Kat and June held themselves, the conversations between all of them. I really like a lot of those dynamics. And going into the multiplayer, as I said as I said earlier, I just feel a lot of those mechanics work really good in Reach. Some people think that they might be a little bit overdone, but I think like they work really well. And Firefight is just incredible. I think it's such a fun mode. It's a good mode if, like, you're with friends and you want to be like, hey, you want to play, you know, some Halo? It's like, yeah, but I don't really want to play competitively or anything like that. It's like, oh, cool, we'll just load up some Firefight. It's like, Firefight is what Halo's horde mode from, like, Gears is, in my opinion. It's just mm-hmm. one of those modes yep. that's fun to just go with friends and see how long you can survive and it's just so good and i really love halo reach yeah i still i like reach a lot overall that campaign is one that i never really totally dug i always thought it was good uh, but i never totally dug it until again i played through them all this year i played that again and it clicked with me more than it ever has before um the story especially because i always thought the story was pretty pretty mediocre uh i'm sorry to say i i i think you're right in terms of they get at least the basic characterization you can understand at a glance the characterization of all the people on your team but i don't think they ever delved into more beyond that just because i think the game is more interested in something broader than just how the characters are i think it's more of like a setting based story because it's literally about the fall of reach the planet and it's an interesting dichotomy that you are this whole team of super soldiers you your six master chiefs and you you can't do anything to stop the overwhelming wave of the covenant that's destroying like this key planet to the UNSC. I think that idea is really powerful, and I'm I appreciate how it explores it more as time goes on. Uh, I I still think the characters could use a, could 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 get a bit more work done to them. There's just not enough time for it, and I get that. I get that it, the story isn't necessarily about any one character. Uh, I like the I like the idea that Noble Six isn't. He's a lone wolf. You get that little that little bit in the beginning about how he's uh, he just they don't they won't tolerate any of that lone wolf stuff on their team. And it is the last mission, I believe. I believe that is the name of the last mission. Yep, it is. And that's it's sort of the arc that he goes on is that he becomes what he was at the beginning, even though he's had all these changes. That's just with just what the situation ended up demanding of him. It took everyone, everyone by his side along the way. And I, I like a lot of that stuff thematically, I think. I think Reach, maybe more than the other games, 4 in certain ways just, uh, explores more specific uh, themes than Reach does. But I think at least up to that point, Reach explores those themes more strongly than any of the other previous games did. It does have a case of prequel just that I don't like, and that's that it does the prequel thing where you have to end by segueing into the original game, and I don't like that. I really don't. I w- The story ends up turning away from the fall of reach and it becomes we need you to race to the pillar of autumn to make the first game happen and i've never really liked that i don't like that that's how the game ends it's very rogue one-ish yeah um it's 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 fun on a surface level like we were talking about disney earlier like it's fun to see those references but i it feels like it betrays what the game was before that like i do understand it in the sense that when that happens, that's them accepting that the planet is lost, and I like that. And they're just trying to get this major asset off the planet before it's too late. I just wish it didn't have to be Cortana 
to the Pillar of Autumn where you meet Captain Keys and then it takes off and then the last line of the game is the first line of Halo Combat Evolved. That specifically is the stuff that kind of bugs me, but I think overall it still works really well and I've appreciated that campaign more over time. Uh, multiplayer, uh, the firefight I've never been too into. I think that's probably because my friends have never been too into it. We've never really played it together. Um, I'm sure I'd like it more than I do if I if I were to play with friends. Uh, it's fine for what it is. I think Reach started expanding Firefight to places that w weren't really as beneficial. It started being focusing more on the God Mode uh, mo uh, variations where you were just trying to get high scores. You'd have power weapons from the start. It'd be less about survival and more about racking up points against your friends. And that's fun for what it is, but I like the Horde Mode concept more where you're just trying to survive as long as you can. The main multiplayer, we talked about the maps earlier, that's that's my big issue. I still think the maps that are in there are fine for what they are. I think the core gameplay is pretty pretty good for the most part. Some of the armor abilities are kind of annoying. I think armor lock is one of the dumbest things they ever added to a Halo game. You stop the gameplay in its tracks when someone's trying to kill you. And if your opponent's good, they can get you from behind when you get out before you can turn around. But I think that just it, it slows down the gameplay in a way that's not beneficial. And some of the other armor abilities aren't that great. I think I always just use the jetpack personally. I don't even bother with sprint. Uh, the jetpack is just so useful. And I think they realized how useful it was because the amount of time you can actually use it is greatly limited once you get to four. Uh, but that's that's always my go-to. I enjoy it for the most part. It's I wouldn't say it's near the best Halo multiplayer for me. But the campaign I do appreciate more now than I used to. Okay, moving on to Halo 4. The controversial one. It's my least favorite. I will say that. I think it is a bit of a mess. Okay. I don't really mind the art style change. I know a lot of people were flipping tables over the art style change. For me personally, it never, like, it didn't do a whole lot for me. So I didn't really care about the art style change. But I do think the weapons are all off in Halo 4. I think the campaign kind of drags its way through the rest of it. After a certain point, a lot of the alien weapons didn't work, in my opinion. I feel like they tried to do, like, oh, here's a lot of alien techno weapons and stuff, and not a whole lot of them worked. Whereas I think in Halo 5, they did it better. Um, but as a whole, I mean, I'm not going to really come back to this one. I think I seek the others more out, and this one has... It still has a soft spot in my heart for being the first like major Halo that I got into with multiplayer and in the campaign and stuff. But playing through the other ones, I just don't really like this one as much. Okay, that's that's totally fair. You're, that's an opinion shared by a lot of people. I I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I I really like the multiplayer. I'll get into that in a second. Uh, the campaign is a mixed bag for me. I think at its highs. The Chief Cortana relationship in particular, that's the highs I'm referring to. That's the best storytelling in the series, their relationship, particularly in four with each other. I think that's the most personal it gets, and I think that really works. The actual plot of the game around it is pretty terrible. Like, the didact is such a nothing villain. He's just a, a bad guy for you to fight. When he shows up, he shows up, I think, in the third mission. Uh, and you don't actually see him directly again until the very end of the game. And... There's not a lot going on in between. The more interesting stuff is like the infighting with the UNSC that Chief has once he's reunited with them. You you get the sense that a lot of time has passed because it's a five-year time jump between the games. I like that stuff, and I like how, how that 
relates to Cortana and how she relates to the rest of the UNSC, but the forerunner plot around it is is really dull. There's not much to it. I really feel like it's a waste of how cool the forerunners used to sound in terms of how they actually presented them here, and I don't think they made it much better in 5 with what they did. Yeah, that story is just kind of whatever for me, but it, it hits the emotional beats where it needs to with Chief and Cortana, and I enjoy the campaign for that. I think the gameplay is kind of dull too. Uh, there's a couple missions that I like. I like a lot of the vehicle sections, but it feels like there's a lot of stuff that's just sort of obligated to be there. Like you have your, like I think you have one or two tank runs that aren't particularly memorable. Um, just stuff like that that feels like we need to have this in a Halo game. So we're going to have it, but we're not going to put too much into it. A lot of the world building that they do, I think the mission where you actually land on Requiem and you're, you've crash landed and you the planet slowly reveals itself to you. I think stuff like that is cool even though it just kind of devolves back into the dull gameplay that defines the most of the campaign. But the story hits where it needs to for me, and that's why I look on it mostly fondly. Uh, the multiplayer I really enjoy. I think the loadouts, the loadouts kind of break it. Uh, I think what breaks it more is the random ordnance drops, because you especially can't plan for those in gameplay, and you don't know if someone's going to have ordnance. You don't know where they're going to drop it. I don't like any of that. I like a lot of the maps in it. I think the it had a bigger focus on Big Team than the other games did. I think all the DLC maps were focused pretty much just on Big Team. And I finally got to play on those on Master Chief Collection. And I like a lot of that. I think the game overall had definitely a more casual audience in mind, trying to get back some of the lost audience that fell off after 3. I don't know if it, it totally succeeded. It seemed like it alienated more people than it would have brought in. But I do enjoy the gameplay for the most part. I like I personally like how the weapons feel. I don't like how the weapons feel in Reach for the most part, if I want to go back to that for a second. But I like how the gameplay feels in 4. Uh, I like the map design, all that stuff. It's not perfect, but I look on it mostly fondly. It's not my favorite, but it's far from the bottom for me. And that brings us to the last one, which is Halo 5. Now, as I said earlier... I think Halo 5 starts off strong. I like those first two missions, uh, two or three missions. I think it starts off really strong. I think the introduction to Master Chief is really good, and it sets that tone very well. But the problem is the way that the game was marketed, which was, oh, Chief's a bad guy, and you and Locke are going to have to fight about it. You know, that's not really what we got. We got a two-minute slap fight between the two of them that we couldn't even take part in. <laughs> And it was all in all in a cutscene. All in a cutscene, and it was overall a bad story. They reused the same villain like six or seven times. Oh, it was it wasn't good. Can you guys tell how I feel about this game? Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, I actually really like the multiplayer in this game. I'm one of the people that will defend this multiplayer. I think it runs. Not only does it run well, but I think it actually plays really good. I I can understand people's frustrations with the slam and the charge and stuff, but as a whole, I don't mind it. I think what is a problem is the sprint to fire. I think that is it takes way too long to do that, but as a whole, I really enjoyed the maps in Halo 5, and I actually did enjoy Warzone as a whole. I'm one of the people that enjoys it pretty much entirely. I think it might be a little bit too long and it can take away from being in a big team fight against each other, but I don't mind it. I think the way ordinances were handled in that game mode, especially were actually done pretty well. 
the microtransactions, you know, they were a thing that could give you an upper hand, but at the time everyone was doing loot boxes or crates and all this stuff. So as a whole, that time in gaming wasn't great, but I did actually enjoy the amount of customization that was in five. It was just a mess to get through everything. But as a whole, I think it actually plays really well. I don't mind a lot of the weapons in that game. I think they all run pretty well. The first two missions set a tone that I actually really like for the for that Halo game. But I understand why people don't like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not much of a fan of this one. I played that campaign. I went through the whole campaign in one night after I bought it. I was engaged in the sense that I just wanted to see where it went, even though I could feel the vibes were more and more off the more I got through that game. Uh, I was like you in that the first hour or hour or so of the game, I'd say the first two missions for sure, I was on board. I liked where they were going. I could see where they were going. And then they just kind of went somewhere else, and I didn't like the direction they went at all. If you care about spoilers for a six-year-old game, uh, I will be spoiling Halo 5 a little bit. They reveal in the first hour of the game that Cortana is, in fact, alive. They just outright say that she's still alive after she dies in 4, quote-unquote. And that takes away a lot of the tension. That's sort of a, a hook in the marketing for me. Uh, if we talk about the marketing being kind of misleading, the hook in the marketing for me was like, what if Chief is actually just wrong about this? What if there's actually nothing out there and he's gone rogue and he's put everyone at risk because he can't get over the loss of Cortana? I think that's a powerful thing to explore. That's not what they explore at all because she's alive and he knows it and they all know it and they try to keep it from him. And they don't explore the fact that they tried to keep it from him nearly enough. That bugs me. I don't like that the ratio of lock to chief missions is the way it is. You have, I guess, four times as many missions as lock as you do as chief. The sto- the whole story is with chief, and the stuff with lock feels so secondary. You're you lose track of the fact that you're chasing chief down at a certain point because you get sidetracked totally. You get to meet the arbiter again. Uh, those missions are what they they're fine for what they are, but distract it's distracting from the main story, which is with chief, who you're not actually playing as. He just gets to pause while you're while you're doing these filler missions as Locke, and then they do a stupid reveal of what Cortana's become that I don't think works at all. It becomes something that I don't think Halo should be at all, and it just sort of kind of betrays what the series is, and it ends on a stupid cliffhanger, and I just I don't like where any of it goes. I could I could talk for hours about this, um, but I'm I'm going to move on to the multiplayer before I get too mad about the campaign. I also just don't think the gameplay in, in the campaign is too fun either. I think the gunplay in the in the game overall is fine. Uh, I used to think it was really good, but I went back to play five this year. I played some multiplayer and it just doesn't feel as fluid or smooth as I used to think it did. I still think it's good for what it is. I, I think the multiplayer game modes work pretty well for the most part. Like I said earlier, dividing it between like the ranked arena, the social arena and having Warzone separate. I like that because it's a message that there's something in the game for everybody, even though they didn't have big team battle at first and they didn't have forge at first. They had that stuff by the end. And if you're a competitive gamer, you have your whole, your whole section to play in. If you're a casual gamer who just wants to play some games, you have that option and you have Warzone, which is also kind of the same option for a casual player. I think Warzone, I said earlier, gets a little repetitive. I think the Warzone assault mode that they had, which they got rid of at a certain point, uh, which is basically like Russian battlefield where you're just attacking and defending 
start at one objective if they break through you go back to the next one and so on and so forth i think that was where warzone was at its strongest and uh, it sucks if that mode wasn't as uh, nearly as popular as the main mode because i think it was significantly better you mentioned thinking the maps were really good these are definitely my least favorite set of maps in the entire series i don't remember what any of them are called and i can name off most of the maps and the rest of the other games to you and to me that's a big problem the one thing i do remember is that they made three different remakes of Midship from Halo 2. They're called uh, Truth, Mercy, and Regret, each named after a prophet from Halo 2. The aesthetic is a little different on each of them, but that just that's a signifier of what the maps are to me. I couldn't tell you what sets any of them apart from each other. I just know that they're remakes of old maps, and that's just that's just kind of the, the overriding feeling I get when I play a lot of 5, is that it just it doesn't click for me. None of it has much of its own identity for me, and I think the gameplay is fine, but I, I just don't feel like the game has much identity, and the identity that it does have isn't a positive one for me, at least not in terms of the direction that it took the series in. That I understand. I, I don't think it ended in a good spot. I do think it was better than 4, personally. Not story-wise, but I think gameplay-wise, I think it was way better than 4, personally, but I understand why people don't like it. Yeah, I can get why someone likes the gameplay more, and I used to say that I liked the gameplay more, but it's just, over time, I've personally, and I know I'm in the minority, I felt like 4 has aged better. I feel like 5 has aged pretty badly already, and it's only been 5 or 6 years. That's just me. I know, I, I, I like a lot of the modes in it still. I like playing the, the ranked modes. I liked playing Big Team, even though you can tell they didn't want to do Big Team, because A, they didn't have it at launch, and B, all the maps in Big Team are Forge maps. They had no maps created for it. Because they weren't going to do it. Yeah, I, I I think the game I think the gameplay is fine. I I, I hate the campaign with a passion. Uh, I don't think it's even fun, like moment to moment gameplay wise. But I think the game overall is is fine. It's probably my least favorite in the series, but it's not at its core. It's not a bad game by any stretch. Agreed. And that is all the Halo discussion we have for this week. Oh, that was a long discussion. That was longer than we than we meant for it to be. It, it was indeed longer. Nick, tell them where they can find you. All right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reeves underscore 117. I haven't posted on Instagram in like nine months, but I might be back there in the future. All right. And you can follow me on Twitter at Star Wars Nerd 9. That is all one word. I'm going to be posting this podcast in links to other things that we do along the week. We are thinking about doing a version of it for YouTube, but don't get your hopes up. It would just be text and the audio. So we are trying to see what we can do with that. And we are working on getting it on other uh, platforms such as SoundCloud or Stitcher. So stay tuned for all of that. Until next week, this has been Nick and Manny's Infinite Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sharing. Be sure to like it. Follow us wherever you can and leave a comment on one of our Twitter pages and let us know if you liked it. Yeah, uh, like we said last week, the response has been great. We appreciate everybody tuning in, continuing to tune in. I hope this uh, Halo segment didn't drag too long for you. Uh, we originally said this is going to be a half hour episode and it's over two hours now. Um, so I hope you all stuck with us. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye.